Tonight's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? Lord God, gracious God, we thank you for who you have given us in your son, Christ Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. The unmerited favor that you show us In your son, Jesus Christ, who died. Who died the death that we deserved in our sin. God, would you help us to see how if we live the life that Christ has for us, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Lord God, you do not want that for us. You you want something far uh, greater for our lives than to be enslaved by sin. You want us to walk in the the life that you have for us. That is no longer dominated by sin. God, that we would no longer have instruments for unrighteousness, but present ourselves to you with instruments for righteousness. God, would you bless us in such a way tonight that we would hear the teaching of your word And put it into practice with how we live 
in light of this truth that you want a life of abundance for us, a life of whole person righteousness for us. God, would you bless us in that? And may we respond to you in worship for what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our sermon series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount is located in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Jesus ascends a mountain to sit and to teach his disciples and the crowds as both king and philosopher. Jesus states that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? what we know to be the Old Testament. Rather, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He reinterprets the old covenant rightly. He offers his hearers a greater idea of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees of his day who lived and taught a shallow and merely external idea of righteousness. Jesus expects whole person righteousness of his disciples, not merely external, but internal as well. And it's confirmed by the external. It's whole person righteousness that he expects of his disciples and teaches them what that looks like. Lived out in six different areas. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love of enemies. These aren't comprehensive teachings on these topics. They, they are illustrations for what greater righteousness he demands of us, his disciples. Last week we looked and saw what the angered Christian must do with his anger or her anger. How we are to seek forgiveness and reconciliation when prompted to do so. Tonight we turn our attention to the topic of lust to see what the greater righteousness that Jesus expects of his disciples would have us to do. So look with me at chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 say this. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body go into hell. The king philosopher, Jesus, teaches on adultery. You have heard it said. We saw this phrase in the passage last week. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is establishing a pattern for his hearers, taking their common knowledge about the old covenant and reinterpreting it in light of his greater view of righteousness. And you heard me say a couple weeks ago, he's not raising the bar to a new and impossible standard. We would be wrong to say that. It's not what he's doing. In fact, that's what he condemns the scribe the scribes and the Pharisees, for doing. Instead, rather, he is reminding them, his hearers, of the true standard. He quotes to them Exodus 20, verse 14, which states, You shall not commit adultery. Back in Jesus' day, adultery was shameful. To be clear, it meant that a married person broke the covenant made with their spouse by indulging in sex with someone other than their spouse. We're somewhat familiar with this concept, but it's nowhere near as shameful as it is in Middle Eastern cultures. In Western culture, where we find ourselves, affairs are taboo but not quite shameful. The reason for that may be that affairs are more common today than they were in Jesus' day. It was pretty rare that someone would bring shame upon their family and their household by committing the sin of adultery. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, many are thinking to themselves, I would never But Jesus goes on, saying, But I say to you, that I there is emphatic. Matthew uses the Greek language in such a way that we would know that that I is supposed to stand out. Jesus is flexing his authority in the second portion of the pattern. I, your king philosopher, say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The same men and women who only a moment ago were so sure they had not committed the sin of adultery are now not so sure. They thought sin was merely external, only committed through actions. But Jesus would have them realize that sin can occur internally in our thoughts and our desires, which is why he mentions the heart. The king philosopher gets to the heart of the issue. The issue is of the heart. The king philosopher, Jesus, gets to the heart of the issue. The issue is of the heart. I want to give you three heart-probing questions to ask yourself tonight in reflecting on your own heart. 
The first of which is, how does your heart handle a look? How does your heart handle a look? I hope you know it is not inherently wrong to look at someone and recognize their beauty. For instance, it was not wrong of me to see one of our own, Jen Krenner, in her wedding dress after her wedding ceremony this past weekend as I looked at her and said, you look beautiful. Our heart is not corrupt when we recognize objective beauty in people who are made in the image of God. And we praise God for being a creator who creates beautiful things. That being said, we need to keep in mind that there is a time and there is a place for such a recognition to be appropriate. The look that Jesus is talking about here is obviously a look that incites desire. It's not just a look, but a lingering look, a gaze. It is not a look that says, I care about you. It's a look that says, I want you. The language used here for lust is synonymous with covet. In fact, this passage implies a knowledge of the 10th commandment, which we find in Exodus 20, verse 17. And it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. According to that verse, to covet is to desire something that is often in your line of sight, but you cannot have. But not only that, it's a deep dissatisfaction with what one does have. The man who cannot take his eyes off what his neighbor has cannot see the many blessings that are under his own roof. How does your heart handle a look? Does your heart even attempt to shrug it off with a sense of contentment? Is there any break in the gaze with a reminder of how good God is to you? Does it do your heart any good? To linger with a look for what you cannot have? How does your heart handle a look? What does your heart think of the person? That's the second heart-probing question. What does your heart think of the person? As we've already said, it is not inherently wrong to look at a man or woman but to do so with intent to desire him or her sexually is sin. I know Jesus places lust in the context of marriage here with his use of the word adultery, but we must realize that the application for his teaching extends far beyond the bounds of marriage. 
It is sin for you to lust after a person, period. Let me put it more blatantly. It is sin for you to look at and engage with pornography. Published sex is designed with your inclination towards lust in mind. It is sin for you to lust after a person. It makes no difference if she's married or not. It makes no difference if he's married or not. The only way it makes a difference is if you are married to the one you desire, because then it is no longer lust. It is not sin for you to desire sex with your spouse. It is, however, sin if you desire sex with someone who is not your spouse. In this distinction, we are reminded of a beautiful truth. That sex is God's good gift for a man and a woman to enjoy in holy matrimony. What does your heart think of the person? Does your heart think, this person could be a potential spouse if I pursue him or her patiently and intentionally? Or, does your heart think, I'm not looking for a long-term commitment. I'd rather just use him or her as a coping mechanism. Why would God bless you with another human being made in the image of God if you would treat him or her as less than a human being made in the image of God? What does your heart think of the person? And then a third heart-probing question. What does your heart desire when you lust? What does your heart desire when you lust? To lust after a person is sin. It breaks God's law. It rebels against His good design. It is disobedience at the heart level. Lust is sin. But why does God consider it sin? Have you ever thought about that? Is he a cosmic killjoy looking to crush our fun? No. He's a protective father who desires true and everlasting uh, satisfaction For his children. He is a protective father who desires true and everlasting satisfaction for his children. When we lust, we crave temporary satisfaction that does far more to hurt us than help us. Lust leaves us worse off than before we ever looked. Sin promises us so much and delivers so little. What does your heart desire when you lust? When you look at pornography? The short answer is, not God. You don't desire God when you're lusting after another person. In other words, you have a worship problem 
at the heart level. If you're wondering what your purpose in life is, what you were designed for, here it is. Your purpose is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. That's what you were designed to do. To worship God and enjoy Him forever. And when you rebel against that design, you will never truly be satisfied. Apart from God, you cannot be satisfied. Psalm 107, 9. Psalm 107, verse 9 says, For God satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Praise be to God for that promise from Scripture. That He would fill the longing of our soul with true and everlasting satisfaction. Cling to that promise. We must turn the affections of our heart toward God and be satisfied in Him. But that's not all. In this passage, we also see the king philosopher promotes violence against the tools used for personal sinful behavior. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? That the king philosopher, Jesus, would promote violence. But he does so against the tools used for personal sinful behavior. Look again with me in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The two metaphors here are nearly identical from one another. Except for one word and its corresponding violent action. Right? You have the eye, which is to be plucked out. You have the hand, which is to be cut off. And we would see that the Apostle Paul would call these instruments for unrighteousness, as we saw in our scripture reading in Romans 6 tonight. These violent and drastic acts are debilitating. You lose something when it happens. But they serve as a means to rescue the individual from Gehenna, the city dump, hell, eternal torment. Jesus says, gouge out your eye. If your heart cannot handle the look, I've heard one pastor say it this way, it's time to find the ice cream scooper. Some of you will never look at ice cream the same way ever again. We cringe at the thought of it, don't we? That's good. That means Jesus' point is, is getting, he's getting his point across. If we let a look become lust, it will lead you down a path 
where you lose self-control. And if you have no self-control, self-mutilation doesn't seem so far-fetched. He says, gouge out your eye. But he also says, chop off your hand. The heart couldn't handle the look because it has escalated from the mind to the rest of the body. Physical action has occurred. Thus, further physical action is required. I don't know if you've seen, some of you, the the movie 127 Hours. Uh, It's based on a true story. In 2003, a hiker in Utah's Canyonlands National Park was climbing when all of a sudden he lost his grip. He fell and knocked over a boulder, pinning his right hand and wrist against the canyon wall. He was there, pinned down for 127 hours until he made the decision to cut off his own hand. Self-control. If you do not have self-control, self-mutilation doesn't seem so far-fetched. Now, before you grab the miter saw, here's an encouraging word. These are metaphors, and they are meant to be taken seriously, not literally. These are metaphors, and they are meant to be taken seriously, not literally. I need to explain this a bit because we don't use literally the right way anymore. Uh, I am as much to blame as you are. I did this last night as I was leaving a friend's house. Uh, I said, it is literally impossible for me to leave without my keys. It is literally impossible for me to leave without my keys. Uh, No, no it isn't. Uh, It's more challenging, yes. It's not impossible. Uh, It would mean a really, really long walk back to my house, but I'd get there eventually. Uh, We misuse the word literally, and uh, I I join you in that. Uh, These metaphors are meant to be taken seriously, not literally. Jesus is not demanding his disciples to start hacking off body parts that cause them to sin. This passage would lead us to believe that it is possible to lust your way into eternal separation from God. And it would also commend us to take drastic actions, drastic measures that would prevent us from that undesirable outcome. John Owen says, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. What Jesus expects of you is that you would turn the affections of your heart toward God by putting a violent end to your lustful lifestyle. Turn the affections of your heart toward God by putting an end, a violent end, to your lustful lifestyle. The Bible word for this is repentance, to turn from your sin and to turn to God. So tonight I would like to give you six weapons for repentance. 
Six weapons for repentance. Uh, the first of them is an acronym that spells out ANTHEM. ANTHEM. It's from Desiring God Ministries. The A in ANTHEM stands for uh, avoid. Avoid as much as possible, as is possible, and reasonable, the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. Avoid it. Now, we live in an over-sexualized culture in the middle of a sexual revolution. It is nearly impossible to all out avoid anything that would do this. But we have to put forth an effort to do it, to avoid. But when you do see that billboard or that image does flicker across the screen, the screen, we say no. That's what the N in Anthem stands for. Say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. You've probably heard it. You have five seconds with a thought. Either take it captive or it will take you captive. Say no. Turn. T stands for turn. Turn the mind forcefully toward Christ as a superior satisfaction. That's what we're talking about when we say turn your affections, but to do so forcefully in a moment when you may be tempted. H, hold. Hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. Think on Passion Week. Think on what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. Think about how that played out. Look to Scripture. Cling to Scripture in times of weakness. And treasure the gospel. God's power to save sinners. Treasure it. Hold fast to it. H, hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. E, enjoy a superior satisfaction. Enjoy a superior satisfaction. We know it. We've experienced it. In times where you're on fire for the Lord, the Holy Spirit's wind is in your sails. You're walking in the victory that Jesus Christ has paid for you to live. We know that there is superior satisfaction in pursuing holiness. Enjoy it. And then finally, M, move. Move into useful, a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. Move. Use your energy for something productive. Exercise. Get out of the room. Whatever is going on, get out. Move. Physically move. That's one weapon for repentance. A helpful cognitive tool that starts in the mind and works its way into to action. Second weapon for repentance. Confession. Confession. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Yes, confess your sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Yes and amen. But when you have someone sitting across from you and you're locking eyes with them and you're giving them, surrendering to them, the shame that you've been bearing, and you hear on the other side the audible voice of someone saying, you have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's powerful. The tangible forgiveness of Christ being heard by your brother and sister in Christ. Choose wisely who you would confess to. Don't just confess to a roommate who's also struggling in the same ways that you are. Find someone who's a little farther down the road who would be considered a righteous person. Someone who has been there and conquered that and who's willing to walk you through it. Prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Third weapon for repentance, accountability. Accountability. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, Counsel in a person's heart is deep water, like a well. But a person of understanding draws it out. Somebody's doing the work to get the bucket down in the well and pulling up the water that's inside. Who would you trust to hold you accountable with your own heart, knowing that your heart is wicked and deceitful? Who can understand it? It's true. God. But you go to the same person you just confessed to, and you say, hey, I'm liable of scheming myself. But I'm, I love you, and you love me, and I, I would not want to do that to you. That'll help you. That'll help you stay, stay in the will of God. Fourth weapon for repentance, phone restrictions. <clears throat> With each and every iOS update, there's more that is added to the arsenal in terms of phone restrictions. That you can limit and block websites, limit your screen time, look up tutorials on, on how to manage those settings. And then give your phone to a friend and say, hey, you have the code, not me. And when you need that code, they're looking over your shoulder to see what you do with it, which apps you download. Hey, it's debilitating, but it's worth it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sometimes we're so often scared by limiting access because of whatever freedom and liberation we may want, but it's a good thing to limit yourself in this way. You don't need access to every nook and cranny of the internet. Phone restrictions. Fifth weapon for repentance, covenant eyes. Uh, this is um, accountability software. Uh, someone is going to get an email update every week to see how your progress is, see what you've been looking up, what even some background data is going on in your phone. This isn't to accuse you in your shame. This is to be able to offer up grace where and when you need it. It's $10.50. If you can't pay for it, I will. 
Hold me to that. I would rather have a ministry that is serious about seeking sexual purity than to be well off and be oblivious of it. They get their name, covenant eyes, from Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? And then last, the sixth weapon for repentance, scripture memorization, bringing it back to what's in here. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word, word in my heart that I might not sin against you. With every ounce of scripture that you memorize, meditate on, and internalize, you are giving the Holy Spirit ammo against the fiery darts of the enemy. And that it helps to be able to cycle through these, these, these verses, God's word, to be able to fight off temptation when it comes. It's one thing to write these down. It's another thing entirely to practice them. I know a lot of guys who've thought, this is a good idea. They don't live it out. So let what I'm about to say invoke urgency and seriousness within you. I think that's what Jesus wants from us in this passage. There is another violent end to the lustful lifestyle. If you do not put a violent end to your lustful lifestyle now, your life will be at risk of eternal violence in hell. You think plucking out your eye is bad? You think cutting off your arm is bad? It is nothing compared to the torment and the fires of hell forever. All that for looking at porn? No. All that because you did not heed the words of Jesus Christ when he said, Repent. I urge you in the only way I know how to do. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn the affections of your heart toward God and God alone by putting a violent end to your lustful lifestyle.